Okay, yes. So uh, Christoph uh, Gielen's specialty is, air, he's a photographer, right? So he, he brings a, a, a different sort of interest uh, and focus to, uh, to the symposium. Uh, and you're going to see many of his images. But when I contacted him, I was excited because he's in, he's in production mode around a project of aerial photographs of supermax prisons. It's a very complicated project, uh, as you can imagine, not just the production as well, part of the production aspect, meaning getting permissions and all of that sort of stuff, and no permissions, yeah. So in any case, I'm not going to say anything more about that. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, Christoph is, is, is a represented uh, photographer. He's also working with, uh, the, and has done documentaries, documentaries with uh, the New York Times that are online, and you can Google him and access those things. So it, it, it took two years, but again, slowly, and he was off to Berlin when we invited him last year, but uh, again, we persisted, and, and, and here he is today, and he uh, informed us that he is, is delighted to have escaped temporarily from uh, New York and its summer weather. And, uh, and, and, and we're trying to lure him even more permanently to the West Coast. So um, Christoph's talk uh, will be, I, I, when I spoke with him, I, we talked about it being a little, uh, a different sort of format and presentation. So because it's so visual, he's going to work through his images that it'll be about a sort of solid 40 minutes. And then we'll see, we'll see where we go from there if you want to follow up on questions about the prison stuff or just have some feedback or whatever. Uh, as is the case with all the other speakers, um, that's part of what dinner's about, is to continue the conversation and the exchange. And, and, uh, and hopefully they'll all be open and happy uh, for that. So Christoph's talk is... Uh, Ciphers, Decoding the Growth Machine. Thank you, Krista. Um, okay, can you hear me? No. Okay, so um, my aim is to show sprawl and its consequences in ways we usually don't get to see it, and that's from far above ground. I'm calling these views ciphers, as in codes of habitation, a secret writing, or obscure forms that need to be deciphered. Settlement patterns are always transformative. They cover land surface, they conceal it, and they might even render it impervious. And at first glance, the locations you will see in these landscapes might appear as something organic, perhaps even a cell growth seen multiplying under a microscope, but not as the banal suburban developments that they actually are. The planning of the neighborhoods I'm going to show you, like um, this web of prefab housing in Arizona, is bewildering, um, but also alluring, I think. <laughs> so this here turns out to be a, an RV resort a mobile home park from the late 60s by Busby Associates, and they called it Venture Out. Um, um, I made this project uh, really to make a case for sustainable planning, but from an artist's perspective. The planning process is normally exclusive to the developer, the bank, city councils perhaps, and other local agencies but essentially removed from a larger public. And I, on the other hand, want to reach out to anyone interested in society's role in land use and its effects on the environment. So I, I really want to startle viewers into a reconsideration of, of how they live. And I want them to see entire neighborhoods made of tiny little building blocks that are all identical-looking homes. Um, who comes up with this? Um, um, I want to draw a connection um, between the built environment, building practices, and climate change. I think that if we want to cut down on carbon emissions, it will actually require us to, to grasp the implications of car-centric growth and to start reducing the high ecological footprint of suburban dwellers. And um, my question is, or was with this, how can I compel attention to this? We're all familiar with um, these types of depictions of subdivisions and cul-de-sacs, but um, to me, 
This view is certainly more, more startling, more attention-grabbing. This alien-looking place in, in coastal Charlotte County sits right at the sea in Florida. And um, to me, this looks like something maybe NASA designers uh, might have come up with in the 1950s as, as an um, extraplanetary settlement concept, perhaps. But I, I took these at dawn. And uh, this shot reveals one of the oddest large-scale water designs found in any landscaping. This formation uh, emerging here, not unlike a gigantic crop circle, measures more than three miles across, and it was constructed by the Kavanaugh Communities Corporation in 1973. Most of uh, the homes there have access to that star-shaped canal system for their boats, but um, each channel segment is a dead end, unconnected to that larger circumference channel or the nearby sea. Um, so it's actually unclear where the residents would, would go. There's no, real <laughs> there's no real transportation purpose to this planning. Its design function is mainly aesthetic. So um, talking about sprawl certainly isn't new, but I hope my method for addressing it is, and that said, at, at best, I feel that with ciphers, I can awaken a, a yearning for an ecological symbiosis between nature, society, and the, and the built form. Um, my goal, really, with ciphers is to examine the ramifications of building trends well beyond American borders and to bring about an understanding of growth machines that systematically generate more car-dependent and low-density developments. I think uh, it's absolutely relevant to think about this now. I could uh, point to any number of wake-up calls, but let's just mention the recent rebuilding efforts in the Hurricane Sandy aftermath. Uh, I, I, I'm convinced that we risk repeating uh, the same mistakes that North America has already experienced in this era of globalized economies. Um, and this uh, is from a video shoot that I did, and this sequence shows the surface of the Wood Ranch Reservoir as it is manipulated by the rotor blades of our helicopter. Um, filming here was meant to call attention to water management-related challenges and to the notion of water as an essential resource. Water supply should be a determining factor in all planning considerations, but especially in the southwest and southern coastal regions. And while Wood Ranch is in, it's, let's see, Wood Ranch is in California's Ventura County, and it, it was developed by the A.A. Baxter Corporation in 1964. And although this area is often dealing with wildfires compared to many other regions that depend on a far-flung water supply. Wood Ranch is actually adequately managed. Um, this is the region we're talking about. Um, typically, settlements in these landscapes require large water feeds, not just for basic existence in locations that are not always um, suited for development, but for maintaining golf courses or elaborate water features. Um, Vegas comes to mind, and its satellites, um, all drawing on Lake Mead, and so that's an, an, a satellite view of, of Lake Mead. Um, so then this Maricopa County community, seen here from a great height, is large enough to disrupt Phoenix's secondary street design. So. Three more of these rondelles make up this colossal complex that was designed in the late 1950s by Dell E. Webb. Um, this is the same neighborhood from a lower altitude. And to convey this place as self-contained, I photographed it closer to the ground, just above the inner circles. Each lot here measures almost exactly the same and the median age of residents is 75. <laughs> so showing an end stage, a completed project as part of the land, producing a link between the planning community and the general public, 
and um, a link between the landscape and its conditions and those who live in it, I really see that as the function of my photography here. So you, you might wonder how I even got to sprawl as a subject. So growing up in Germany, I realized early on that I had a disproportionately strong response to encountering Plattenbau. That's the typical post-war concrete high-rise made of prefab plates. So, and, and it was sort of a compelling repulsion that I wanted to experience again and again. So I, I, <laughs> I already understood uh, back then that I had a fascination with housing and also a heightened sense of, of, of space. And I think this priceless shot um, of the Leipziger Straße in, in Berlin during GRD times, complete with propaganda billboard uh, of Erich Honecker, really sort of expresses that. I feel sorry for the folks who have to step out and had to step out and see that every single day. Um, so my response was uh, this, this one here. I took that over the former East Block sector in the Berlin periphery. Uh, and that's built by the socialist agency Wohnungsbaukombinat, also in the late 70s. So um, let's forward to freshly released from art school and ready to apply myself and for expressing this passion for housing. I wanted to delve into a major project on the topic and by extension to emblematic misuses of, of land and resources. And I spent quite some time researching and sprawl kept beckoning. And um, by 2004, I was absolutely sure the suburbs were it for me. And Alan Berger's Drosscape in particular about wasting land in urban America sealed my decision to, to photograph sprawl. I think that it's a condition that concerns us all. Sprawl is a growth model that demands resources and space, and both are becoming more and more limited. Earth's land surface is finite, and population growth and urban expansion are proliferating rapidly. Sprawl is also careless new use of land, and based on the idea of home ownership. I'm not sure if it's possible to read this ad, but it says how much. can afford, yes, exactly. Um, um, and it tends to express itself in clusters of single-use family homes and always a car ride dependent distance away from absolutely everywhere. And still, this pattern is the prevailing norm. Um, surprisingly, this lush development is a city section of Las Vegas, and the Howard Hughes Corporation came up with this in the, in the late 1990s. They named it Summerlin, and I found that I could alert an audience to these land use details by producing an aesthetic experience if I was able to, to generate a, a sprawl encounter that left them with a sense of, of foreboding, of, of seeing the writing on the wall. And this was also made by the the Howard Hughes Corporation, and as I intimated before, I think uh, at once fascinating and profoundly unsettling. Um, the critique of sprawl as a cultural phenomenon is absolutely valid to me. Um, so far, the burbs have tended to lack culture. They're mainly places of consumption, location inefficient, and even fostering of, of obesity. They're Architectural expression is one of predictable standardization. Um, I guess we also have to look at the flip side. Um, aside from the putative attraction points in, in the marketing of homes, buyers generally seem to be looking for upward mobility, the physical comfort and safety of suburbia, access to schools, and I definitely think sameness. And Ironically, we place such a premium on individual choice here in the US, but suburban culture produces individuals that are collectivized in their ways of life, their consumer behavior, and home for home, almost identical in their expression of it. This is in the uh, 
outer Houston realm and their Fort Bend County homes in 2006, built by the Texan group Newland Communities. And from here, it took me one and a half hours to drive to central Houston. Now let's just double that time and imagine a daily commute minimum of three hours if the traffic is smooth, uh, in addition to work time, just in order to attain a place of one's own amongst these hermetically sealed homes and chemically treated lawns. I, very strong opinions, I know. Um, but the prepared lot that you see there uh, on the lower left was about to be filled, and I'm guessing the home there will have been assembled fairly quickly because some of these parts are actually prefab. And um, I think that these settlement patterns should by now be considered as relics from an era that was entirely defined by a belief in bigger is better, when neither distance from workplace nor gasoline prices much mattered in determining the locations of new constructions. Um, and I feel that not just a building community, uh, we all could gain some valuable understanding from examining the morphological aspects of American suburban growth and pattern. Now, this might resemble an ancient tablet or an isolated fort in the Nevada desert. Note that the entire complex has only two exits. Um, now, if there aren't any public places to go to outside, and you're more than welcome to try finding one in this picture, <laughs> seriously, um, doesn't that lead to an encapsulated life, either indoors, uh, by the television, or inside a car, going to anywhere else? So I personally really wonder what kinds of amenities might made, make such a boxed-in life worthwhile. This place was given an, a very appealing name, though. This happens to be Spring Valley by Rose Ranch, <laughs> built in Clark County just before the crash in 2004 in this moistureless, hot territory. It's a purely speculative development. I don't think that these homes are worth very much now. The water supply, again, for the entire, that the entire region draws on, uh, Lake Mead, is at record low levels, and it's actually expected to, to dry up by 2030. I mean, opinions diverge, but within 20 years, uh, it's expected to be, to be gone. Um, and this video sequence shows an arid Simi Hills territory, north of the Santa Monica mountain range. Uh, it's a high-risk region known to be wildfire-prone and it's already slated for development. I filmed these during weather conditions conducive to, to wildfire, and these fires here can grow to engulf more than 16,000 acres in blazes that annually threaten ho homes and, and natural resources, power lines, and communication equipment. And, uh, but ensuring personal safety and meeting reasonable home insurance coverage apparently don't suffice to deter development here. So you can see what happens during fire there. Um, I also want to let you in a bit on my process, how I go about shooting these places. So to find compelling locations to photograph, I start with a list of statistics that reveal something um, about trends foreclosure rates, for example, or rapidly developing regions. These below average income homes belong to a stretch in Melrose Park that was created by the West Broward County Realty in 1954. And during the mortgage crisis, um, this area near Fort Lauderdale was hit very, very hard. Um, the foreclosure rates interest me because they may be an indicator that new sprawl planning isn't just environmentally unsustainable, but also fiscally short-sighted. Um, as a phenomenon, they're directly tied to rates of housing development. Foreclosure hotspots uh, occur more often in, in places with the least location efficiency. Think about um, some of the far-flung 
excerpts. Um, and then as a, as a next step, um, I always want to examine any region myself firsthand on the ground before considering any of them as aerial locations. And usually that process includes touring these sites dressed as a prospective home buyer with a realtor in tow to gain some insights into how these neighborhoods uh, present themselves, you know, into the neighborhood's aspirations, um, you know, to find out how it sees itself and is portrayed in, in sales pitches. And sometimes I also go over blue, blue, blueprints, like um, this one, is this still in focus? Okay, um, I requested these from the California Department of Transportation. This is the 405 intersecting the Marina Parkway in LA. And here is the merger of the five with routes 173, the 60, and the 101, uh, also in central LA. Um, that's the 1960s development by Caltrans uh, Department of Public Works, the division of, of highways. And um, so only at the end of, of my search process and as efficiently as possible, because helicopter flight time is paid for by the minute, do I actually go up and, and shoot? Um, I often encounter neighborhoods that um, are perfectly intriguing statistically, that uh, seem to showcase exactly the conditions I'm after, but are otherwise completely indistinguishable in their appearance from any other. Uh, and that's more often the case with, with less affluent neighborhoods. The more outlandish features always tend to be a part of gated communities, some of them completely over the top in their design concepts and also clearly discernible from above. So here is one of those. Um, and of course, those are the places that I'd zero in on. The layout um, that you see here is actually so distinctive, it's, it's used by overhead air traffic as a, as a location marker when they fly into this region. Um, you're looking at one of Ed Robson's elaborate signature projects from the 1970s. Um, it builds itself as, as an intentional community, whatever that means, and it's perfect for active adults. It's uh, also located in Arizona, surrounded, again, by very arid terrain. It has nearby golf courses. Uh, I forgot how many. Uh, but just imagine the, the water supply needed to sustain this kind of lifestyle in this geography. Um, I also encountered relatively good matches between both statistics and uh, visually intriguing territory. Um, for instance, um, until the recent real estate crash, um, these Nevada settlements at the base of the Black Mountains were built up. Ten years ago, these were some of the fastest growing Tomorrowlands in the nation. Uh, the, des uh, the designer and the developer, both, uh, again, predominantly Delhi Webb, um, they actually designed these communities with a specific buyer profile already in, in mind. And such a buyer profile for this particular settlement might reflect a disposable income for spending or consumer behavior, even brand preferences, and, and that probably much more precisely than just differentiating between folks who shop at Whole Foods over Walmart. And I think this is a good example for understanding the degree of homogenization by method that can become part of a neighborhood's DNA before it's even built. And I guess from a developer's point of view, again, it makes sense to be able to identify the most likely customers for your target region upfront and how to attract them. And while that seems to be pretty exclusionary, uh, who knows, perhaps that, that is the appeal for living there. I, I don't know. So another great match right off the bat was this one. You were looking at homes uh, in San Bernardino County. Uh, it's also a region that has registered some of the highest failed mortgages, and this section here is called Village of Heritage. So there's no pun intended there. Um, but um, this particular planning 
conjures up a Rorschach inkblot for me, but there's no accounting for what others might see in this design from, from 1987 by, by Jess Harris. And um, when I asked him about his priority for this town, he uh, jokingly confessed, suggesting that some people had detected certain female shapes hidden in the town's layout and um, that he didn't object. So, <laughs> so in other words, um, they're an intentional part of, of, of his design there. Um, so, but um, compared to the relative precision of all my location assessment pre-flight, the technical aspects of, of making these pictures is not always so straightforward at all. Any helicopter is subject to constant engine vibrations, and then there's a wind factor to consider. Both can easily translate into blurred pictures. And then I'm also very old school, at least for this project. Uh, Cyphers is actually shot on, on film. It's not, uh, not digital, which brought along its own set of uh, film-changing challenges in the air until I figured out how to, to bring two cameras, an extra person for changing films, uh, while continuing shooting with the, with the other camera instead of losing valuable airtime fumbling with film rolls or getting motion sick from shifting focus between the exterior and the, the interior of the, the cabin. But the all-out technical low point of the entire production was not uh, having to abort a mission over Vegas during an episode of nausea, however ungracefully that one ended. But uh, my most disappointing experience um, took place during an, a really exhilarating and completely failed night mission. Um, so for, for that, we, we managed to, to utilize a police searchlight and shine it onto the houses below. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, but wait till you see the results. So all my film was uh, underexposed so grotesquely that I did not get a single shot. And so here's what that looked like. Um, little... <laughs> Little flecks of, of light lost in a, in a sea of black. So I'm very sorry about this to this day. Um, and um, now I, I also had to find um, com, com, you know, compatible pilots, especially for shooting over prisons. Not everyone is willing to do that. If, um, if ID numbers on a helicopter are spotted from, from below, so every aircraft has a, an identification. The helicopter license might be looked up, followed by, by questions, even though making these photographs over prisons in particular is, is technically not illegal. So the exact same locations are accessible to anyone who's interested on, on Google. Um, and this is how these pictures are made. Um, uh, in the right frame, you can see my, my Navy SEAL-trained shoot navigator who's willing to do this simply because he's into challenges. And uh, to obtain unobstructed shots, I'm wearing a harness that makes it possible to leave the, the cabin. And this one is about, about 6,000 feet above a women's facility, and that's an Arizona state prison in, in, in Perryville. So um, recording these environments from the sky is tedious, so why do it this way? It's, I, I, my, for me, it all goes back to, to one pivotal moment, um, and that was a, um, at a point in my exploration when I was fixated on demolitions. I was in 2003, and I was working with a group of seismologists who provided ground vibration data to blastmasters and insurance companies, and I was photographing um, for them at implosions. And at one of them in Scotland, in Dundee, that I also described um, in a New York Times article that I called the death of a building, I finally realized that in order to be able to show development in a much larger context that I would, I would have to get up above. And 
So for this shoot, I was situated on a on the rooftop of a public housing tower, very much like this one. This is in Dundee, but um, so only a, a courtyard divide away from the identical from an identical high rise that was about to be uh, imploded, um, and I was as close as safely possible to the impending detonation and on the actual housing premises, so up on the rooftop of, of one of those guys, with a unique elevated view looking down as the building would fall. And so for that, that rooftop vantage point was perfect. It wasn't quite aerial, but made me want to observe from much higher. And um, although I'd been working around implosions for a while at that point, I was completely unprepared for the intensity of the blasts because I was so close to them. So there was a series of deafening bangs and the building would fall into itself within seconds, swallowed by these billowing clouds rising from the, from the ground. Um, so recording that event unfolding, including the crowd response a mile away, changed my understanding uh, of the view from above firsthand. So it's that bird's eye view moment in Scotland that that's what, what really compelled me to try to join the, the ranks of aerial photographers. And soon after Scotland, I was ready to give that a try. Um, I decided on, on California. It's packed with with prime examples of car-centric growth. I found myself an LAPD pilot who um, also doubled as a flight instructor. This is this indestructible Bavarian man. I'm from Bavaria with access to a Robeson 22, which is this tiny, unshapely training helicopter with just two rotor blades. It's a uh, completely unsteady and the skids always get into the way. Uh, so I'd sign up for a flight lesson and turn, turn our time into a photo mission instead. And that was sort of the, the most cost-effective means I could find at the time. <laughs> yeah, so, but, and, and it was good. This, this guy, not only did he know the area well, uh, being in law enforcement, he could negotiate his way into any airspace and that always came in handy. This interchange here that I photographed with him um, is right in the approach path of LAX. And um, not only would it have been difficult to enter this airspace to begin with, but my guy was able to, to get permission from two airports in tandem to be there while circling above this interchange. The, the south side is Hawthorne airspace and the north side belongs to LAX. And um, so each time we switched sides circling over this junction, we needed renewed permission to, to enter the airspace. Um, and I used to always photograph very close to the ground. Uh, it was the old days, the beginnings. So those were the, the first forays. Um, if I go up nowadays, uh, it's with film industry professionals who know how to, to fly in order to capture a specific shot that I might be after. Um, I, might an, uh, I might ask a pilot to perform spiraling turns, for example, while descending in, in a vertical column. So just imagine a corkscrew. And the picture frames seen here in sequence often reveal these helicopter movements during a, a shoot. And what you have there is, is uh, yeah, it's just much more abstract than the beginnings. Uh, this is a this chaotic road mass with its multiple parallel roads and connecting ramps was developed by Caltrans and uh, E.L. Jaeger construction in 2002, merely to join, um, merely to join these two freeways in San Bernardino County. That's actually the 210 crossing the 15. And this interchange is nowhere near any major urban hub, but it devours more than four square miles of, of land. I mean, it's gigantic. You would never know what this looks like driving, driving in. So um, I do get asked about solutions. Um, 
for example, to the increase of developments surrounding this stretch of Interstate 5 uh, that you can see here also shot on video. I am not an expert on land use or on shaping policy, uh, but I am glad to be able to report that there is a, a new momentum out there, new trends towards seriously considering what it means to, to build sustainably exist. Architecture schools the world over are going through a discipline change towards sustainability. Um, and clearly this challenge of having to reduce our carbon footprint could also be seen as an as an opportunity, I think, you know, to, to spur innovative design responses to our current sprawl patterns. So perhaps even some new interpretations of the idea of economic growth. Um, so here are I'm just going to give you some some useful objectives, just a, just a few, and any of them uh, would set us on a better course away from sprawl as we know it. So uh, any new housing should aim at a densification of already existing neighborhoods, for sure. Parallel, we should begin to embrace the notion that we can very well also devolve neighborhoods uh, that are no longer viable. Um, to a smaller urban footprint, into farmland, and perhaps even into open space. A very sad picture. Um, uh, these are just some research shots that I took over Lee County in Florida, over a sparsely housed, rundown grid. Um, and I think maybe this might serve as an example of a region at a tipping point. Could this be devolved or? Does it make sense to reconnect it to its urban Fort Myers fabric in an attempt to revive this largely depopulated area? Um, and what would the determining factors for that be? And uh, in contrast, more populated districts need zoning that fosters multi-use development, that mixes and uh, reconnects places of work, living and leisure. And any new constructions of far-flung excerpts in, you know, with large homes in the middle of nowhere, I think, should be discouraged. I think we need to see a switch away from um, what are essentially monocultures like these to complete human-scale communities. I also think that it's time for a distancing uh, from the strong focus on the nuclear family-oriented model and to attract individuals to these areas from all walks of life. So I think that population diversification of the suburbs would be beneficial overall and lead to looking at their potential perhaps as, as mini cities that might offer real cultural amenities beyond mass entertainment and malls, you know, with, with restaurants, theaters, libraries and pools and civic centers, with public places that rival those in, in cities. And um, I think that a shift in suburban demographics is, is likely because affordability of life in urban centers becomes more and more limited, perhaps uh, even cause for, for leaving them. And, um, but any change uh, must include improvements in transportation and infrastructure, both in available modes of transportation and in transportation habits. Um, these here are outdated Caltrans developments, again from the 1960s. I want, coming from Europe, I want to see a highly functional public transport system in addition to the ones that you see here, and as a as a real viable alternative, and one that's on par with the rest of the advanced world. And I mean by that, quick rail links into metropolitan regions, and within them and a renewed focus on railways between all major cities, which we had here about a century ago. And my personal mission uh, is an aggressive fostering of bike use. I think we should bring about a new acceptance of, of, of bike use. Uh, Davis in California is, is a good example for that, and they started this quite a while back. This is a shot from the university archives from the 60s, Davis is often touted as, as the most bike-friendly city in the US. Um, um, 
16% of all the folks there actually commute on, on, on bike to work and it has the lowest traffic fatalities on, on record. And uh, I also want to say a few words about an important example of a solution at work for addressing water issues. So at first, uh, Florida water management consistently redirected and cut off the flow of the Everglades for development. Here, vital Florida wetlands were drained before this gated privatopia was built and then water was artificially reintroduced for this unusual Collier County landscaping in 1998 built by the DeVosta group. And this patch of land is named Four Seasons. I think that's very original, and, you know, considering that the, that the geography in this location experiences something called uh, equatorial savanna climate or tropical wet-dry climate, but uh, definitely no distinct difference between four separate seasons. So it's every month of the year, it's above 64 degrees with periodic stretches of more rainfall. <laughs> But uh, my point is that clear evidence of an energy inefficient lifestyle that is emblematic of water mismanagement beyond seeing these dwellings here is really easy to find. So Florida landscapes that are already distinctly altered uh, and these type of phenomena here are on the rise what you see there is a um, the infamous white zone. It's uh, a stagnant, hypersalinated coastal area that has crept inland since the 1940s. The white that you see there is um, from ocean salt and droughts resulting uh, from interrupted water flow of the Everglades, uh, groundwater issues, and the impact of severe weather. The water tables in the region have already plummeted. And to me, these are all indicators of an ecosystem driven to the collapse by overdevelopment. These uh, show subtropical watersheds in South Collier and Monroe County. Um, they're shrinking river delta channels known as sloughs, hammocks, and estuaries reduced to a fraction of their former size. And um, I aimed my camera at this ailing Everglades system at the tail end of a drought from about 10,000 feet above. Um, so this is uh, what drought in the Everglades National Park looks like. Um, so this fresh water scarcity and the habitat fragmentation and climate change reflect just how significant it is to retain some semblance of this region's former capacity as a critical aquifer and a hotbed of biodiversity. Um, I also want to point just quickly, I mean, there are many things wrong in, in Florida at the moment, but uh, I do want to point to, with, in, re, in regard to this effort, but I want to point to Bruce Babbitt, the former Secretary of the Interior. Love him. Uh, so Florida agencies uh, started reversing some land use practices in the late 90s, uh, actually buying back land already slated for development and uh, turning it into development-free territory. Um, creating weather barriers in some sections and even reconnecting the severed arteries of the Everglades ecosystem in others. So uh, with that in mind, it's self-evident why Secretary Babbitt now argues that the United States of the 21st century uh, should look uh, more like an archipelago of cities in the sea of, of open landscapes and looking uh, down from far above, that definitely makes sense to, to me. Um, so that's just one example from, from land preservation. I can't share all my research with you here, but there's just one uh, from an unexpected corner. Um, here are just two from the architectural front. Um, I'd like to point to some ready-to-implement solutions, and this is not rocket science at all. 
uh, that we could already be utilizing, not just in Florida, but um, across the US. So here we have Bjarg Ingels of the Danish group BIG, and he came up with systems uh, that uh, utilize a, a very basic uh, principle, uh, but for widespread use, and that principle is, is called passive heat gain. This is, we could all be using this <laughs> by now. So it optimizes the conversion of sunlight into usable heat for water, air, or air movement for ventilation, and in summer it can provide passive cooling by mechanisms that deflect heat. Um, and my favorite guy out there is Edward Masria from uh, Architecture 2030. He argues that buildings are a major source of global demand for energy, but that by 2030, we could build them carbon neutral, uh, using no fossil fuel energy to operate at all. And he actually lays out a viable plan for this, so do me a favor and, and, and look him up, please. Um, I'm, I want to conclude Cyphers by calling attention to population growth and the studies of Paul Ehrlich at uh, Stanford. Ever since his uh, seminal 1960s work, but much more clearly now, he warns that the implications of perpetual growth are unsustainable, that we've already passed an optimum human population count, um, population growth is not nearly as prominent a discussion as it really should be, I think, and it is inseparable from the relentless move toward the consumption patterns of developed nations. So I want to know, can we actually come to terms with limiting population growth? Um, just imagine it, in, uh, in the 1970s, the world population was 4 billion, 40 short years later, within just two generations, we've nearly doubled in numbers, and I find that almost incomprehensible, I, if I really let myself go there. Uh, population uh, matters uh, from Britain is a really user-friendly, comprehensive source for figures and context. And I translated this uh, into I think that the, the, the challenges posed by overpopulation might also call for new settlement patterns. Um, this here is an example of vertical density in contrast to the spread out developments that I've shown so far. Um, it might look like a more efficient way of living, but its impact uh, depends on how effectively resources are used. Um, the magnitude of current uh, urban expansion rates hasn't really been quantified on a, on a global scale. This um, abstracted view from South China, actually, I'm sorry, it was this one from South China, shows a numerous apartment lights and a vertical wall of high rises that belong to the ocean shores block complex in Tukeng Leng, and that was built in the, uh, in the 1990s, I think. Uh, the territory is not large at all. The Tukeng Leng subway stop just about covers it, just to give you an idea of, of scale. But this development area is for a planned population total of 450,000 people, according to the Executive Council of Hong Kong. So this is, again, kind of unfathomable, but and abstract. To me, this is abstract living. And this also shows a massive wall of apartments in the same region at dawn. And this vertical rise was also constructed in the 1990s by the Hong Kong Housing Authority. Each time I was in China, I've witnessed this rising of instant cities. And to uh, illustrate that, or the sheer speed of, of of, of this action, um, I managed to get myself onto some construction sites where entire neighborhoods mushroomed from the ground in a matter of, of, of months. And usually, oops, sorry, and usually um, these sites are walled in. Inside, migrant workers who also live on site are active uh, around the clock. 
This looks like a stage set to me with dark, empty concrete high-rises on each side, and very strangely, it's, it's all lit in with green spectrum floodlights and rubble covers the ground. This um, city section itself was still peripheral when I recorded these, and now, uh, just about eight years later, all of these neighborhoods have been swallowed up by larger Shanghai and are no longer even part of the city periphery. Um, the building of such complexes is typical of countless other projects of its kind all across China. And what I think is, is noteworthy that uh, some of them are speculative ventures and some of them even remain empty. So I want to conclude by saying that, that built space does express a society's material and political priorities, and clearly that is relevant not just in the United States. I maintain that we can transform the future of sprawl, uh, that there is a real need to enhance our capacity to withstand disturbances, climate change, and energy insecurity while coping to understand the properties of growth and form of our housing. And I hope that my images for this project can spark debate and help decode aspects of the 21st century sustainability crisis. So that was Cyphers. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> We could take a break, or we could do Supermax Prisons in nine minutes if you have energy, or we could go and get a beer and come back. <laughs> I doubt if anyone's going to go have a beer and come back. <laughs> but, uh, do, do you want it? nine minutes of uh, Supermax, or would you rather go for your... Or whoever can, wants can go, yeah. or who wants to stay can, can stay. So we'll just quickly see that, because I'd like to see it. <laughs> well, it's in progress, so it's not... Uh... Okay, so this is, this is nine minutes. It's nine minutes. Does anyone want some chocolate? <laughs>
guy, he uh, we immediately abandoned the mission right after entering this this, this airspace. So, in comparison to the uh, to this quick flyby, I would call it, I, I normally find the right altitude and, and position for banking the craft in flight so I can get out and, and photograph. So airspace over these prisons is not restricted, but it's more or less understood that as a member of the general public, one should not come too close to any of these high security places. Um, there's a super max, maximum security but once I realized that it was possible to photograph above these places, I was drawn in by, by what else these constructions might reveal, both from an aesthetic and a sociological point of view. Um, these are the grounds of the Perryville State Prison and its uh, units in Maricopa County, built by Arrington Watkins Architects in 1980. And I don't think it's wrong to state that since the 1980s when the US prison population first began to rise dramatically that we've been living in an era of, of mass incarceration and are undergoing one of the greatest social experiments of our time, um, the ramifications of which of course have yet to be seen. Members of the Spatial Information Design Lab, uh, that's a think tank uh, at Columbia University, they even go as far as asking whether prisons and jails have become the new mass housing of our time. So uh, what initially connected this shot here um, of a Ventura County city section in California to prison layouts uh, is the startling recurrence of, of hexagons. So this shows a small master-planned community with about a thousand uh, homes built by the Jans Investment Company in the mid-50s. This layout represents an extension of the Englishman Ebenezer Howard's Garden City ideal about 100 years ago. So there is this startling recurrence of form. Whoops. Um, and it kept cropping up. And in, in some way, that really brings the notion of prisons as the new mass housing full circle. Um, in a way, uh, the resemblance in layout between the Ventura County section on the left and uh, Florence Special Management Unit on the right, completely unrelated in function, I find striking. Um, the six housing units here at Florence uh, have a combined inmate capacity of nearly 4,000. Florence is also significant because uh, a part of it, which I'd shown earlier, served as the forerunner really for all supermax prison design, most notably the uh, Pelican Bay complex in California, built by KMD architects in 1988. That's an illustration. I didn't fly there yet. I, that's not my picture. Um, so with these views, I'm hoping to encourage discussion about prison architecture and what determines it, mainly by providing the opportunity to visually examine these restricted locations in the public realm, um, particularly since uh, the prisons I intend to show aren't meant to be seen. They're kept off limits to journalists and the public. So this project will be a, a multi-platform work that examines this architectural phenomenon and uh, hopefully raise new questions about both the rationales for such prisons and the consequences of their use. Again, it's a team effort. Uh, I didn't go into my project contributors for Cyphers, but for this one, it's a much smaller bunch. I've, I've teamed up with the Canadian cultural historian Michael Prokopov and a film producer also from Canada, and uh, with the support from the Fund for Investigative Journalism, we'll report together on how Supermax prisons are, are designed. The uh, work will feature aerial photography and uh, videography of these places, large format still photographs, and animated renderings of their interiors. I'm also very excited to provide first-hand access to rarely heard perspectives of actual prison industry insiders, and by that I mean uh, the, the folks who built these places, the architects and judges, and hopefully 
uh, a rare glimpse into the dry science of, of building maximum security. And last, the, the, the method of image capture will also become an inseparable part of this endeavor. I'm very excited about exploring notions of surveillance, um, turning surveillance technology back onto the surveillance apparatus of the prison itself. The idea of performing an act of surveillance, uh, of keeping watch over the place that arguably houses the most concentrated forms of surveillance, and in a sense, depending on my platforms later on, uh, also democratizing the use of this surveillance. Supermax remains the most extreme example of an incarceration practice today. To me, it's the end station of our prevailing culture of incarceration. I'm focused on Supermax precisely because this phenomenon is emblematic of current trends towards perpetual punishment. And I just ask what does prison design and architecture reflect about political discourse, economic priorities, cultural sentiments, and social insecurities. And again, I, I don't hold the answers. I see uh, the role of my work as a conduit, as I said, you know, for communication about these topics. And in short, this discussion here, any forum surrounding these pictures becomes part of the work itself. So thank you. That's next. Thank you.